to Red, White, and Confused. I'm your host, Heather Evans. Over the past few weeks, we have discussed different aspects about the Supreme Court on this show, and today that thread continues with a larger discussion regarding privacy rights. I'm joined today by John Domino. John received his PhD from Miami University and is a professor at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas. It's actually where I used to work. (laughs) He teaches and conducts research in the areas of civil rights and liberties, constitutional law, judicial politics, and legal history. He's also published books and articles on civil rights and liberties, federal and state judicial politics, judicial recusal, right to privacy, as well as a biography of a well-known Texas judge. And hopefully we'll be able to talk a little bit about that today as well. So thanks for coming on the program, John. Thank you, Heather. It's so nice to see you again. It's been like three years, so it's great to have you on the show. No, it's great to see you. Thank you. So I want to talk about privacy today, both nationally and then also in your state, in Texas. And given that, you know, this this radio show, WEHC, 90.7, it comes on in Southwest Virginia. So people in Southwest Virginia are a little removed from Texas politics, but I also know that a lot of people look to Texas for things involving their constitutions and like, how are things going in Texas and are other states going to adopt these kinds of policies? So here's where I think we should start. You teach about civil rights, civil liberties, constitutional law, and all of those topics. And for a lot of people listening, they may not really quite understand when somebody says they have a right to privacy, what are they meaning? Is, is it really just about things like abortion and gay marriage, or is it other things too? What is, what is a right to privacy? Well, the right to privacy has had a very, very rich history, and it's very multidimensional, almost like a, a kaleidoscope in some ways. And so when we think of the right to privacy, everyone thinks of Roe v. Wade, and, and perhaps they think of Griswold versus Connecticut, Lawrence versus Texas. Um, things of that nature. But, you know, long before the Supreme Court recognized in the 1960s and 70s, this right to privacy, as they defined it as autonomy, as, you know, what we can do with our bodies, um, there was a a tradition of common law doctrines of privacy, common law tort doctrines of privacy that go back to the uh, late 1800s. And so, State by state, um, these doctrines were adopted. They were all adopted, four or five different doctrines. Some states decided to choose maybe only three or four. So you had, um, first of all, the straight out invasion of privacy doctrine, which as the name suggests, as anyone can understand, it is enables an individual to have legal recourse against another individual or the government for invading their privacy. And an invasion could be anything from the so-called eavesdropping, which I always love that word because you're looking up over an eave of a window, right? So it's not necessarily just electronic, but a peeping Tom or someone like the early days of telephones, uh, telephone companies would tap people's wires, wiretap. So you had this kind of invasion and there's also a trespass dimension. In the earliest days, if you go all the way back to the Fourth Amendment, the founding of the Fourth Amendment in the 1700s, the framers were uh, embraced this kind of trespass doctrine of, they didn't mention privacy, but the idea that this unreasonable searches and seizures, that someone would come on your property, come into your 
into your home. So, but back to those common law doctrines. So you have this invasion doctrine. There was also something called the appropriation of your name or likeness. So the theft of who you are, almost like today we would call identity theft. Now that goes back to the late 1800s as well. There were doctrines dealing with the public disclosure of private information. Today, we would, you know, there are statutes that protect against identity theft, but this was literally public disclosure of information, information that I might give someone, um, or I, I would paint up on the side of your house that Heather owes me $100. Literally, it was a court case like that. So there's appropriation. Uh, there was even one that was called false light, which is almost like defamation, but it's basically putting you into such a degree of false light, creating a false image of you that it violates your privacy. Now, not all of those sound like a straight out invasion of privacy, but together they constituted this, this body or constellation of privacy doctrines. And then of course, from there, you know, we, and those are, those are limits. Those are limits on what the government can do. And there are also ways of dealing with private uh, violations of, of those privacy rights. And then, of course, at that point, we begin to get to the, the earliest days of Supreme Court rulings uh, concerning these types of rights. So I'll pause there. Yeah. So when I think about Texas, you know, I, I lived there for 10 years. You're, you're still in Texas. You, you actually, John, you were born in Texas, correct? Are you? No, no, I was, I grew up in Florida. That's uh, it, Florida, but you've been in Texas a very long time. How many years now? Uh, over 30 years. Yeah. So, you know, whenever there are these discussions about things that everyone wants to talk about when it comes to privacy, because like when I teach it, I talk a lot about abortion. I talk about gay marriage. I talk about the right to die. Those are like the big three and, and, and students and I, we don't necessarily often talk about privacy in terms of these other realms, right? The realms of the fourth amendment and so forth. In Texas, do you see the Texas constitution being more advanced on privacy rights than the U.S. constitution? Or do you think that everything from the U.S. constitution, like federally, they have a leg up in terms of privacy rights. The, Texas has a much more robust right to privacy than exists at the federal level. Now, again, we're talking about, you know, mostly judicially created judicial decisions in terms of right to privacy. So even though the word privacy is not found in the Texas Constitution, I think it's only found in about 12 of the state's constitutions. Um, it is, has been interpreted in, to be this really kind of a robust right, an in, invasion of the right to privacy. In fact, you know, some of the earlier decisions beginning in the 1970s, which when the Supreme Court of Texas first recognized this right to privacy, really characterized this right as very, very broad, talking about human dignity and, you know, the, the person, the the inviolable nature of the person almost sounds like, you know, Griswold versus Connecticut. And so a lot of those, um, those state constitutional decisions came around at the same time as Griswold. And in Texas, there are a number of provisions that the courts cite that create this right to privacy. One is called like the arbitrary deprivation of liberty. 
in the violation of one's you know, integrity, things of that nature, as well as freedom of conscience and religion. So the, the courts, and of course, court composition changes all the time. But if you look at these decisions, and they're still good law, uh, they, they talk about a very, very robust right to privacy. So uh, from that, the legislature then steps in and codifies a lot of these doctrines so that we have, you know, five or six privacy statutes in Texas that, that protect people, again, from everything from eavesdropping to digital privacy to overhead drones. But again, the big question is how close to that does that language or those doctrines get to reproductive rights and things of that nature? And I would have to say not very close. Um, in fact, you know, reading these decisions, the courts, Texas courts, stop short of that and say, you know, if, if you want to talk about Roe v. Wade, which, of course, is now a history, uh, if you want to talk about that, we have to rely on federal grounds and not state. In fact, there's one case was interesting. A guy asserted this man uh, asserted that there was a, a right, a constitutional right to commit adultery. Now, the. Austin newspapers love that and, and picked that up, of course. And <clears throat> the Texas Supreme Court said, no, no, not really. Uh, you know, clearly the state has a limited interest in what people do behind closed doors, but there is no uh, right to privacy that extends to adultery. It had to do with someone who was law enforcement who um, was terminated uh, as a function of, of his dalliances. The constitutional right to adultery. That's very interesting. So, you know, I've been hearing a lot of people say, and this is especially during the Dobbs decision, that, um, of course, we're going backwards. And I, I'm not going to dispute that at all. I, I think we are as well. But the one line that keeps being used over and over and over and over again is that um, we have lost a quote unquote constitutional right to abortion. So are, is that correct? That there is a constitutional right to abortion that was there that is no longer there? Well, of course, as you read the opinion, there was no word abortion uh, or reproduction or anything like that in the Bill of Rights. Uh, of course, the word privacy doesn't appear. I mean, you have the um, due process clause, right? Life, liberty, property shall not be deprived without due process. Now, Justice Alito liked to point out that it's all about process, although I think history bears out that there is a lot of substance along with that process in the due process clause in the fifth and the 14th amendments. But anyway, I think your question was whether or not there is anything that resembles um, the right to an abortion. I never really, when I taught about it, even though the language was there in the cases, I never really talked about a right to abortion. It was a, a right to privacy as autonomy. Again, that word autonomy, not in the constitution, privacy as autonomy that extends to a woman's body and to the extent that she can do what she wishes to do with her body, medical procedures, and you know, for the most of history, um, abortion was considered to be a medical procedure. And, and so from, I mean, that's how we, we got there. So for Alito, 
the reversal is such is that so I'm not reversing any constitutional right. Uh, I, I'm just interpreting the Constitution in a much more literal and 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 less promiscuous way. Yeah. Well, let me pause for just a moment in case people are just tuning in. Hi, everyone. This is Red, White, and Confused, and I'm your host, Heather Evans. I'm chatting with John Domino, who is a professor at Sam Houston State University in Huntsville, Texas, and he teaches and conducts research in the areas of civil rights and liberties, constitutional law, judicial politics, and legal history. He also writes a lot about those topics, as well as judicial recusal, the right to privacy, and he has a biography out of a very well-known Texas judge, which again, I want to get to in a moment with you and, and his opinions that re- revolve around privacy as well. Now, John, this decision that came down in Dobbs, so now I'm like, again, we're kind of switching gears from Texas to national politics. Um, are you surprised? I mean, I, I, I wasn't. And also it, it feels like, you know, once the pre-decision was released, we all knew what was about to happen with the actual opinion. So like, but, but looking at the court over time, since the beginning of like all of these abortion debates, should we have been surprised that this was coming? No, not at all. And, and again, the writing on the wall, if you want to use that metaphor, uh, or the writing in my books, right, I can go back and I can look at all of the discussions of the dissenting opinions since Roe versus Wade, the dissenting opinions. And, and you know, whether we jump over to Casey versus Planned Parenthood 92, or we jump back to everything that came between 1973 and Roe and Casey and subsequent cases, you know, a dozen cases Um, The dissenters in each of those cases, at least some of those dissenters said, this is not a constitutional right. You cannot create one out of substantive due process. This is something that needs to be returned to the states. And this is like a theme. So we're going back to 1973. So there's nothing that Alito says, short of a couple of words that we can talk about. Um, There's nothing that Alito says that is in any way surprising. And it was one of those things with each new academic year, I would teach constitutional law and we would get to these cases. And I would say, I'm surprised that Roe v. Wade, well, Casey versus Planned Parenthood is still good law. And because if you look at the amount of opposition to it, the only thing that is maintaining this is a kind of fear of the court reversing precedent and a kind of sociological concern that would be that you know you're you're turning this right on its head, or for example, you're reversing all of this practice. So there have been generations of women that have grown up expecting there to be a constitutional right, and I think that fact, kind of a sociological fact, was really the only thing that was holding the court back from overturning Roe. Now, in Thomas's writing about this decision, um, he mentions a couple other pieces uh, that are related to privacy. And there have been people who have now been very nervous about things like gay marriage. Do you think their fears are well-founded? Yes, absolutely. Uh, once again, you would think that the way I think, kind of a, you know, that, that precedent is extremely important and, and is the cornerstone of our legal system. And we, we shouldn't be overturning any kind of precedent regarding contracts, property, or abortion, for that matter. 
But I think so. I, I think that that's the case. Number one, if you look at both, well, if you look at Thomas, he's going to take the kind of Scalia's view um, and that many of these issues need to be returned to the states, a kind of originalist, liter literalist view. And then if you take a look at Roberts, even if he doesn't adopt the views that Alito and, and Thomas have, as well as kind of channeling the late Justice Scalia, he, he, was, he was very, very upset. He was uh, extremely upset. You, you can't help but see how upset he was, the emotion in his dissenting opinion in the Obergefell same-sex marriage case. It's like, this is madness. You're creating this, this right. You're finding this right, and you're short-circuiting, I think that was his term, the democratic process. You know, going up to um, Obergefell, going up to the same-sex marriage case, all of the, many states, there's a lot of momentum out there. And with each passing year, a, a new state would legalize same-sex marriage. And he saw this as, as this movement and he, was, he, he may mentioned the fact that he was glad that society was much more accepting and that it was much more fair about these things. But he did not believe that, quote unquote, unelected nine justices should make this determination. So if you have that type of concern, hostility, coupled with Alito's view and, and Thomas's view that you're creating this right out of whole cloth, I, I think that I would not be surprised in the least to see Obergefell reverse, um, even notwithstanding the policy implications. People are married. They have all of the rights and privileges associated with any married person. People are moving from state to state. So that is pretty significant. I mean, as significant as, as abortion. Because now you, you're going to have individuals who are married. Are they no longer going to be married? Are they expected to, to leave the state? You have a whole new set of policy concerns. So long story short, I would not be surprised. Yeah. And what would you expect in your state of Texas to be like if that were to happen and it's returned to the states? What, what right now is on the books there involving gay marriage? Is anything on the, on the books about gay marriage? Well, years and years ago, there was a constitutional amendment proposed and ratified that said, you know, marriage is between a man and a woman. And it's interesting when you have these ballot initiatives, right? So in Texas, legislature proposes an amendment and the voters ratify, typically with four or five, 10 percent voter turnout. But remember, this one uh, had to do with uh, a cultural issue and a really large number of people turned out for that. And so I, I think you have um, that plus some statutory language, which is now dormant, just like, believe it or not, with respect to the sodomy ruling in Lawrence v. Texas, which overturned Bowers v. Hardwick, um, that language, that statutory language is still on the books in Texas. It was never repealed. So even though in Lawrence v. Texas, the court says you shall not to the states, you shall not criminalize homosexual sodomy. Well, they never, they never repealed that law. So if Lawrence v. Texas is overturned, then that law goes back into effect. Wow. Yeah. Well, and I've had people on the show before now who've talked about how what people need to start doing is getting very active in their states because it's as though the federal government, I mean, for instance, 
right now. It's not like tomorrow the Supreme Court's going to hear a case and reverse what just happened in Dobbs. So, you know, the, the idea is that you need to be very active in your state, on your state politics side of things in terms of judges and, and just your representatives and everything to get these things codified into law. I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, and I've seen a lot of protests outside judges' homes or justices' homes or following them to places where they're eating, and I feel like that's actually hurting the cause. Someone made the argument, well, they decided there's no right to privacy, so they don't really have a right to privacy. What would you say to that? Well, people have the right to protest, but in an interesting case called Frisbee v. Schultz, the Supreme Court upheld a city ordinance which prohibited protests in a residential area. So they said it had to be drawn very, very narrowly. It couldn't pertain to abortion or anything else. Um, But the court said that, you know, that you don't have the same First Amendment freedom of expression and assembly in a residential area outside my window right now. And now that was one, it was a Wisconsin law that was upheld. And so that's one law that was upheld. But what that allows now is that any other state uh, or local government can um, pass such a law and protect public officials living in in their homes. Now, whether they will do that or not, I, I don't know. But that's the Frisbee v. Schultz. So you don't have a right to come to my house and, and protest, you know, unless I'm living in the back of the courthouse. Now, earlier, um, before we started recording the show, John and I, we were catching up a little bit, and he mentioned uh, the one justice that he's written a book on, so Bob Gamage. Um, can you tell everybody a little bit about him and, like, the ways in which he viewed privacy in Texas? Well, again, you know, the the way that these um, existing precedent, privacy precedents are applied, you know, and the way that the Texas Constitution is applied or interpreted is going to depend on the composition of the courts. So when Bob Gamage was on the courts, he was one of the last of the liberal Democrats prior. Well, he, he retired in 1996. And so by the time he retired, he was in kind of a permanent dissenting mode. So the the conservative Republicans had the majority and he would dissent in most of these instances. And so he was involved in a case where there were these very, very aggressive anti-abortion protesters that would camp out in front of this this doctor's gynecologist um, home in a residential area. They would even go to the kid's school and they would yell, you know, baby killer, baby killer, what have you. So. In the decision, the court, it was a a fairly kind of technical issue, and they never ruled directly on it, but they they would not allow this doctor to recover. And and Gamage was arguing, you know, we need to hear this case fully on the merits because Frisbee v. Schultz applies, and these abortion protesters do not have the right to camp out on Dr. Aquino's front lawn or on his curb and protest 24-7. But the majority, they didn't want to hear that. And I think the moral of that story is, right or wrong, no matter which side you're on, is that it really depends on the composition of the courts. So again, eventually Gamage retires, and now the court is completely dominated. And it's not a monolithic, you know, in in terms of their thinking, but dominated by conservative Republicans 
who are accountable to the voters of the state of Texas. Because here in Texas, of course, we elect all judges. So back to the point that you made is that if you do want to see changes in the way the courts apply privacy precedent and the constitution, then you need to focus your attention on the ballot, what's called down ballot races, you know, those judicial seats. And, and, you know, obviously there'll be Democrats and Republicans on the ballot. Most people do not follow judicial races. And I think now would be a good time, instead of camping out in the justices' front lawn, would be to focus on the ballot and see who's on the ballot. Yeah, I just don't, when I see this happening on the news, I think like, what exactly is your, what are you wanting to have happen? And is this a good way to have this happen? So like following someone through a supermarket, it's not going to make them take up another case, like I said, next week and just reverse a decision. And furthermore, I actually think it kind of makes people not want to join your side. I mean, I, I've held a few demonstrations myself in the town of Abingdon, and I've never thought, hey, let's go find out where this representative is going to be and let's go like protest outside either their home or wherever they're going to end up. I just, I, I don't see it as helpful, I guess. Well, rights are not absolute. And there's a concept called ordered liberty. And I think Americans need to understand that, that, you know, that we don't, whether it's a, a, a mob, you know, storming the Capitol or whether it's a mob storming a justice's house, that this is inappropriate. There are no absolute rights. There, there's not right, there are no rights to do violence, to threaten violence. To anyone. And, and so every liberty must be ordered, the way the phrase was once said, meaning that ordered or balanced with, with other interests, one person's privacy rights in, in their home, person's safety, um, what have you. And, and so the, the concept of ordered liberty needs to be understood, that there are no absolute rights. And I think what's really kind of interesting is that Many people on both sides of the abortion debate have argued for years, as advocates are going to argue, that they're in absolute terms, that this is all absolute, I have hands off my body type of thing, or, you know, that, that there is a human being at stake here. And, and so, and I think that kind of absolutism on both sides, and we're kind of getting away from, well, still in terms of you look at the amicus briefs filed in these cases, they, they speak in absolute terms. And maybe that absolutism has gotten us to where we are today, the inability to come to some type of a, of a meaningful uh, compromise. So I have one final question for you, and it's about looking at the three branches of government. You know, it, it's been argued before, even by some of the founders, that the, the justice system or the Supreme Court or the judicial branch is the least dangerous branch, which is also why it's number three in the Constitution. Do you think we should be viewing it in that way? Because I ask this question to students and they're like, they, they usually put the Supreme Court last. And I'm like, wow, like rank it, right? Like rank which of the three branches is the most dangerous to the least dangerous. And then they end up putting the Supreme Court at least. And I'll say to them, but what they decide has trickle down effects on everything. Where would you put it, John? I don't, know if I, want to talk about, I don't know if I talk about danger uh, as much as power. And, and so um, 
it's interesting right now in one of my in my graduate class, they're reading a book on FDR's court pack and called Supreme Power by Jeff Shessel. And it, it's all about the court packing drama that people were extremely angry with the United States Supreme Court in the 1930s. The president got involved. He wanted to pack the courts to change to, to shape the courts in his own image. And then eventually we got through that as a society. FDR's policies were enacted and the rest is history. So I, I think it has to do with, with power. The Supreme Court has the power to start revolutions and to stop them from happening. So every once in a while, the, you know, in the midst of a, this calm, this ruling will be handed down. And whether it's, you know, has to do with Dred Scott or Brown versus Board of Education, which would be the opposite in terms of justice or Roe v. Wade or Dobbs, um, or, or even rulings pertaining to presidential power, whether a president can act unilaterally. The Supreme Court from time to time has exerted a, an extraordinary amount of power and a very alarming amount of power. And, and the fact that there's really no recourse, you know, we can not vote for a president, we could remove a president, we can change the composition of, of Congress fairly easily compared to the Supreme Court. So, you know, once the Supreme Court now is established, we'll call it the Trump Court, and these justices will be entrenched, they will sit for a long time. So there's, you know, what decisions they have now have, have a decades-long impact. So we won't call it dangerous, but it, it, extremely powerful. I like that. It's not danger, but it's power. Well, thank you for being on the show, John. And you, um, if you missed any piece of this broadcast today, you can catch up again wherever you get your podcasts, like Spotify and iTunes. You can also listen in to Red, White, and Confused each week on WEHC 90.7 FM on Thursdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 1. I hope everyone has a great week.